that actually becomes a very, very dangerous thing. And so I, I often say that the social justice movement on the left is, is almost theocratic in outlook. And I, I stand by that because I, I think that's really the, the essence of it. It's just the, this view that they understand what virtue is and they want the rest of society to go along with their conception of virtue. And that's really at odds with liberal democracy, um, which in which you know each individual should, should be able to determine for themselves this concept of social good. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Up Council. I'm Sean Robichaud. In this episode, we interview Kaveh Sharuz. Kaveh's interest in law started with a cataclysmic event at the age of eight, when his uncle was executed for political crimes in Iran. From there, his family fled to settle in Canada. His academic acumen propelled him through U of T and then on to Harvard, where he was exposed to great legal minds like Supreme Court Justice Kagan, legal scholar Lawrence Tribe, Elizabeth Warren, Barack Obama. And from there, after having equipped himself with a Harvard degree, he left and worked on Wall Street as many do before realizing that his interest was going to bring him back into human right. After Wall Street, Cave moved to Ottawa, working for the Canadian government, developing global policy on human rights. Today, Cave is a senior fellow with the Macdonald Laurier Institute and an ongoing contributor to contentious issues surrounding Iranian affairs and human rights law. He's not one to back down from controversy, and this episode will show you just that. He has seen firsthand the dangers that dogmatic views and suppression of freedom and thought can have on human rights. And with that, I bring you Kaveh Sharuz. My family moved to Canada in 1990 from Iran Iran in 1979 had a revolution, and uh, I think initially it was a popular one, but it took a dark turn pretty quickly. Um, so there was a lot of political repression. Um, there was a war, the Iran-Iraq War, throughout the 80s. <clears throat> so it was it was kind of an unpleasant time to be living there. And my family specifically had had a lot of problems with that government. My family, for the most part, had certain leftist leanings, um, which in them to which so so they were inclined to, to support the revolution initially but once the revolution took an Islamic turn um, the government turned against you know leftists and, and people with uh, the political persuasions that, that my family had and so we had family members that had to escape the country we had family members that had to um, uh, sort of go underground um, and then I, I had one uncle in, in particular who was arrested um, subjected to a kind of a kangaroo court, uh, tortured, and then um, about eight years into his ten-year sentence, was was executed. And uh, that I think was the point where my parents thought to themselves, like, this is not really a place where we want our, our kids to grow up. Um, I have an older sister, and I think that was also um, an incentive for my parents to get out of the country, thinking that there really wasn't much of a future, especially for a woman um, in a country run uh, by a religious government. And so um, we ended up in Canada. Funny story, actually, my, my family initially um, was supposed to move to France and um, everything was worked out. It was just a matter of getting the, the visas for it, like going down to the embassy and getting the visa. Um, incidentally, you know, a, a bomb went off in Paris, um, which the French government blamed on the Iranian government. So they closed the Iranian embassy in Paris in retaliation, the Iranians closed the French embassy. My family never got its visa to move to France. And in the interim, we ended up applying for uh, immigration to Canada and we ended up here. So it's, it's funny, had that bomb gone off 
a month later, my life would have gone a completely different direction, and I would be living in France right now. How old were you at the time when your uncle was executed? Uh, I was eight years old. Eight years old. So were you able to um, see this happening? Was this a public event? Or uh, how did, I guess what I'm trying to get at is what were your emotions at the time? Did you appreciate what was happening? Um, I knew something horrific was happening. Um, you know, I, I had seen him in prison a few times. Um, you know, this was a weekly or, or bi-weekly thing. My, my mom would go visit him and sometimes would take me along. So I've kind of seen the insides of, of Iranian prisons. Um, and then for a while, the, the, all the visits were suspended. And, you know, a lot of these families that had political prisoner children, um, they all knew each other and, and the rumor mill got to work. And, you know, there were, there were rumblings that bad things were happening inside the prisons, but it was on complete lockdown. Um, and other families started getting phone calls telling them to come in and basically collect their children's belongings. And we anticipated that one would come we would get a call as well. And unfortunately we did. Could you sense the fear of your parents? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I knew my, my mom and my grandma, they were completely wrecked. Um, and I don't think they ever really recovered from that. Even today. Uh, yeah. I mean, both of them have passed away. Um, but, uh, you know, for the remainder of their lives, I mean, this is something that they really, they carried with them. When you came to Canada, what were some of the biggest contrasts you noted from your time in Iran? What were some things that sort of stuck out that May, may have been lost on people listening to this. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's funny. I mean, like you, you, you land in this country and first of all, everything is so quiet. Um, everything is so clean and tidy. Um, I remember going for my first day of school and, um, you know, back in Iran, you sort of sit down, the teacher walks in, you sort of stand up as a sign of respect for the teacher. It's very sort of, it's almost militaristic in some way. Um, and here, you know, I, I walked in on my first day of school and the kids are just kind of running around. There's like a reading carpet. So people are just sitting around and like had their legs up and yelling and screaming. And to me, it just seemed like a madhouse. It, like I couldn't quite understand the lack of order and lack of hierarchy. Um, it takes a while to get used to that, um, that culture. Also, the other thing that, that struck me was like back, back in Iran, if you were good at school, that was kind of the thing that made you popular at school. Like everybody wanted to be the smart kid here. Those values weren't quite the same. I mean, it was like the class clown that got a lot of attention. The, the smart kids were sometimes mocked for that. So I found that, you know, a little puzzling and it took me a while to get used to that. So whereabouts in Toronto did you grow up? Um, I grew up in North York, um, in, uh, around Bayview and, and Steele's area, um, which since then has, has come to, you know, that general area has come to be known as, as Tehranto. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just like a lot of Iranians have, have moved to that neighborhood. At the time we were there, we were actually one of the very few. When is it the first time you thought of law in being a career choice? Did it cross your mind when you're seeing what's happening in Iran or did it take some time to realize that this is the path that you wanted to take? Um, it's, it's funny, you know, like when we moved to Canada, uh, I, I just knew that I had to succeed professionally and, and in education and, uh, the, the choices, frankly, were limited in terms of as, as my parents laid it out for me. You know, it was like being a doctor, being an engineer, being a lawyer. Um, and I knew early on that doctor and engineer weren't really options for me. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think it, it occurred to me that, that law is something I wanted to do. A, because that's, that was kind of the expectation, but also I, I had a certain facility with language. Um, I was good at logic, but also, the injustices that I'd seen kind of firsthand and the injustices that I knew were happening in the world, all those things kind of prompted me to think seriously about the law and uh, eventually pursue it. But I, I don't think it was really ever a, 
it, it was never like a lifelong goal to be a lawyer. I just wanted to kind of have some positive impact. And it just so happened that I had the right skill set to go into into. Do I understand right that you did your undergraduate at the University of Toronto? I did, yeah. Did you take any courses law-related there, or did you have any interest in human rights at the, while, you, while um, you were a student? I, I, I was certainly interested in human rights. I was a little bit politically active. Um, and in terms of the coursework that I did, um, not specifically anything having to do with law, but I studied a lot of political philosophy and logic. And I think both those things are actually very useful for the study of law. Um, logic, especially, I mean, it, you know, just a, a day-to-day of, of, you know, thinking through cases and arriving at certain conclusions. The political philosophy, I think, tries to answer the bigger questions that um, uh, are sort of the foundations of law. Now, you went to law school, not just any law school, you ended up getting into Harvard. So how did that happen? And, you know, there's a there's certainly a mystery and awe of people go to Harvard. So I think it's important uh, for our listeners to understand what is that experience like? Uh, tell me about your time at Harvard, some of the influences you might have had, people you've met. So Harvard was was exciting. I mean, I ended up there. I, I I had done well in undergrad. I was always a good student. I'd done well on my LSATs, and um, you know, I just kind of wanted to get the best legal education, and, and so I applied to a bunch of the Ivies, and I got in at Harvard. And uh, I I went there. I was initially, I have to admit, quite in, intimidated being there, um, and sometimes for good reason. I mean, there were some really really bright people there. Um, and others were really of the same caliber that I'd seen at U of T, frankly. Um, it was exciting to be there. I mean, you know, among the list of professors there that I can name, you know, Elena Kagan, who now sits on the U.S. Supreme Court, wow. Elizabeth Warren, um, you know, Alan Dershowitz, some famous name, Larry Tribe, um, you know, a certain young senator, Barack Obama, would sometimes swing through. So it was just, it was an exciting time. Um, we didn't know kind of, especially, you know, with somebody like Warren, we didn't know that where she would end up, but you kind of knew that these are people that are going to be important. Um, and but I often say this to people. I think probably the most valuable thing at Harvard for me um, was this. So I had spent my time at U of T um, in a certain political milieu, if you will. If you will, um, very kind of left leaning. A lot of the courses I'd taken had, had very left leaning professors. Um, you know, attending meetings of the Marxist Society of this and the leftist Society of that. And Harvard was probably my first encounter with different types of people. Um, which is which is a strange thing to say because Harvard is is sort of universally known in the U.S. and the U.S. academics as being like a very liberal place. It's almost like a shorthand for for liberalism. But for me, that wasn't the experience. Like I went there, and it was the first time where I'd seen deeply religious people, um, like evangelical Christians from the South. I saw people that had served in the military, um, that had served in Iraq, that had served in Afghanistan, um, and I went there with some preconceptions about what they would be like and the fact that. Um, you know, I would expose them for the, you know, for how wrong they were. Um, and I got to meet these people. And first of all, I I found them oftentimes to be good, moral, virtuous, upstanding people. And secondly, I found that I came up short often in in arguing with them on various points. And so it was great exposure to new ways of looking at the world that were just kind of outside my ideological bubble. And I think I walked away from that experience, a very different person thinking that, you know, there are a lot of different ways to see the world. Um, and for that, I, I think I'll always be grateful. And it was just, it was just great. It was a great environment to foster that kind of discussion. So like many uh, Harvard grads, you ended up in New York, um, practicing, uh, in New York city. You worked, uh, for a firm by the name of Cleary, Gottlieb, Steen and Hamilton. Uh, I think that was from 2006 to 2010. 
Tell me about that, because that too has a certain aura of mystery and, and awe. Yeah, I think so. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I, I have not worked, for example, on Bay Street, so I can't quite compare what the experiences are like. Um, I remember the first time actually interviewing for one of these jobs at the, at the Wall Street firms and somebody giving me kind of like writing down what you would be earning. And I thought that's kind of what you make for like the month. And they're like, no, no, that's actually weekly pay. And it just blew my mind. Like I just didn't know like these kinds of money changed hands. Um, and so I ended up, um, at a law firm. I'm glad that I did it. It was an interesting experience. I think working at big law firms, um, make you a better lawyer. Um, not necessarily by virtue of kind of what you learn about that specific area of law, but just the discipline that it instills in you and the focus on giving good service to your clients and making sure that the work product that you provide is, is sort of as perfect as can be. Um, it's a very demanding place. Um, the hours were exhausting. Um, I think I decided for certain that I was not going to work, um, at a big law firm for the rest of my life. Um, one year when I, when I actually slept in my office over New Year's Eve, we had to get something done by, you know, December 31st. And at that point, I was just like, this isn't, this is not a life for me. <clears throat> and also just, um, you know, seeing some of the partners there. I mean, there were, there were smart people. There were excellent people. There were excellent lawyers. Um, but I just realized like, this is probably not the life I want for myself. But the life that these guys have isn't something that I really want to replicate. And I, at some point, I was just like, I need to, I need to leave. Was there a moment where you just walked out or did it gradually come and you eventually um, changed your course into what eventually became um, public public service and foreign affairs? Um, I don't think there was a particular moment. I think all along I'd known that I want to do something that has a public interest dimension. And, uh, you know, after a few years of just exhaustion and working around the clock, you begin to realize like either, you know, you need to be in it to make partner or you need to find a way out. And that's, that was the moment when I realized I needed to get out. So from there, uh, as I understand it, you uh, ended up getting into foreign affairs, particularly as it relates to issues surrounding Iran. You work for the government of Canada as a senior policy advisor in the Human Rights and Governance Policy Division. Um, you've also uh, since then testified uh, before the Senate of Canada Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs and International Trade in 2012. So tell me about that experience, how you get into government, um, why did you stay there, what did you learn? I get asked a lot how I got into government because other people want to go into government. And frankly, it's a bit of a mystery still how you get into government. I got in through a program that the Canadian government runs called the Recruitment of Policy Leaders. Um, I think they still run it where the idea is to kind of find people that have gone to good schools outside of Canada for the most part that have good experiences and bring them in and put them in relatively senior positions. And so I applied through that. And that's how I ended up at um, what was then uh, DFATE, Department of Foreign Affairs, now called Global Affairs. Um, I had always been interested in, in human rights work. Back when I was a law student at Harvard, I was the editor of the Harvard Human Rights Journal. Um, I'm interested in promotion of human rights, but also human rights as kind of like an academic discipline. And, uh, you know, it was a great experience being in government and contrasting it with, with the pace and the style in which Wall Street works. So I, I came straight from Wall Street to Ottawa, which is quite a change of pace. Um, things are obviously slower, but also much, much more collaborative in government. So anything that uh, is decided on has to go through 50 layers of approvals, which is not how things work in the law. Um, even at the big firms, you know, a couple of people may look at something that you put out 
and and that's the end of it. In government, it has to go through many layers of of review, um, and I, I kind of understand that. But I think it's just the, the pace um, at which things happened um, was a little slow. And I think over time, when you're on the public service side, you begin to realize that maybe it's the elected officials that have a little bit more power. And um, so I, I think that was that was one of the reasons why I ultimately decided to leave government. Um, but you know the the human rights bug is is one that I have, and I've been quite active on a number of human rights things, uh, as you mentioned on Iran specifically. It's um, obviously still important to me for for family reasons. My family's still there, and it's an area that I'm somewhat knowledgeable about, and um, I try to offer that knowledge in terms of affecting primarily Canadian policy on Iran. When someone goes to law school, you hear people say a lot of the times, I want to become a, quote, human rights lawyer. And as I can see, it, this is about as close as one gets in, in many respects to becoming a human rights lawyer, working in uh, areas of foreign affairs and development policy. So what does the day-to-day, if we can categorize your time with the government as a human rights lawyer, look like? Yeah, actually, I mean, I should point out, I, I wasn't working as a lawyer for the government. I was working in a policy role for the government, but I was working in the human rights policy division. Um, and my beat in particular, well, I had, I had two primary files. One was the UN Human Rights Council, and the other was um, uh, Business and Human Rights. And so with respect to the UN Human Rights Council, um, every year there's a certain number of sessions that Canada attends in Geneva. And we take positions on various issues and we negotiate uh, proposals. And so that was my role, is was to figure out kind of what Canada's position with respect to a variety of issues should be, um, you know, get them vetted, talk to different departments in government and, and figure out, you know, collectively what our position should be. Um, and then go to Geneva and, and kind of negotiate on, on those positions to make sure that whatever resolution the UN Human Rights Council puts out is one that Canada can live with. Yeah, I've often wondered that, you know, because you, you see... Um, the politicians going to Geneva or, or any place it may be, and they've, they've got their positions prepared. And you, you wonder about the thoughts that went into that behind the scenes. So how many people would work on a team? What would it look like? Um, you know, it's, it's really a, a whole of government thing. I mean, you've got one person like me who, who's kind of spearheading it and moving it forward, but you really run it through all sorts of different um, departments within foreign affairs, for example, because, you know, the position that you take may have implications for your position on the Middle East or it may have implications for the, you know, South America. And then you run it oftentimes by other departments, right? The status of women may have certain views on it. The Department of Defense may have certain views on it. And so you really do have to coordinate, um, you know, all, the position of, of a whole lot of different, different government departments. So when your minister, whoever shows up, what they're reading from is really often the, the result of negotiations that have taken place you know, for months and months uh, back in headquarters in Ottawa. Um, similarly, sorry, when, when a you know, minister stands up in question period and answers something, they're often answering from a binder, but those answers are actually something that I had written. Um, because, and after again, that was something that was vetted through a whole bunch of different departments. Was your time primarily about issues relating to Iran, or or was it no? Everything? Actually, I, I I worked on a variety of of things. There there is a specific um, Iran resolution that Canada introduces at the UN General Assembly in New York every year, but that's actually Canada's big um, sort of signature item. And there's a specific team that works on that. I, I fed into that process a little bit, but I wasn't spearheading it. I was in charge of kind of human rights council writ large, not any specific issue. 
You continue to be quite active in foreign affairs, though, as it relates specifically to Iran, even today. Um, in June 2018, you appeared on CBC, discussed um, the Iran protests at the time and the shortcomings of the Canadian government in speaking out against the violence at the time. So, as I understand, you weren't actually with the government at that time. I was not, no. Um, and, and two, you've, you've written an article in the National Post, January 2018, asking for a reversal of uh, certain policies. Um, relating to Stephen Harper's decision to cut off diplomatic relations with Iran. So uh, now in 2019, do you think think things have become better insofar as government intervention and relations with Iran? Uh, what more can be done? Uh, that's a great question. Um, <coughs> Probably an impossible one too. Yeah, it's, it's it's difficult to answer. I mean, there there are certain policies that I'm promoting anytime I meet with a politician or anytime I write in the press, um, I talk about them. Um, so. You know, just just recently, the U.S. named um, Iran's Revolutionary Guards as a terrorist organization, which is kind of an unusual step um, under international law. Um, and it has implications that I, I think probably people have not thought through completely. Um, but I think something similar should probably be done in Canada. So, you know, notwithstanding the fact that there are difficulties and complexities, um, I, you know, that's a proposal that I'm, I'm often pushing whenever I meet with somebody. Um, similarly, I, I mean, you know, we have... Uh, what are called Magnitsky sanctions legislation in, in Canada, um, where you freeze the assets and restrict the travel of, of human rights violators. Um, we've got that legislation in Canada, but nobody from Iran is, n- none of the Iranian government officials are listed in the annex to that um, legislation. So um, I think it's time where we start adding some names to that list and, and come down hard on human rights violators in Iran. Um, but I mean, frankly, you know, Canada is a relatively small player. So you know, what Canada can do is is limited. Um, the hope is that, you know, you get Canada to move in a certain direction, maybe other countries that we have influence on will, will follow our lead. That's that's the hope anyway. Why do you think human rights clearly is so important to you? You, you spend a lot of time on this outside of work, because right now you're, we'll get to this, but you're working in-house for um, uh, Magna. Um, but I, I wonder why do you still keep this passion? What drives you? I mean, there's there's obvious reasons sort of going back to my childhood. So there's a personal connection. And, I, you know, a lot of the people that I meet in the human rights world, whether working on Iran or other cases, often have some personal issue that they're kind of trying to work through. And, and that's, I think, also my case. Um, I consider myself incredibly lucky. Um, you know, my, my family had the means and ability to move to Canada. And I was given a chance at life that I would not have had if I'd stayed in Iran. I mean, I don't know what my life would have been, but it would not have been nearly as pleasant as it is now. Um, and I think, <clears throat> you know, those that have um, uh, good fortune, I think also have a tremendous responsibility. I, I, I take that idea very seriously. Um, and so I, I think by virtue of having been given a safe life in Canada, by virtue of having this education that um, allows me to kind of speak up, it's it's almost incumbent upon me. It's a moral duty to, to speak up. And that's, I think, the primary driver. In the context of human rights, I noticed um, through your Twitter feed that freedom of speech is something that seems to be very important to you. Um, if so, um, what are your thoughts on what this actually means to you? What does freedom of speech mean to you in comparison to you know what you see in Canada as opposed to um, how it's used as a almost a shield or weapon, depending on on the circumstances. I guess what I'm getting at is, 
from what you've seen and experienced in Iran, freedom of speech means a very different thing than it does here in Canada, or am I assuming too much? No, I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, there there is no freedom of speech to speak of in Iran. It's um, guaranteed under the constitution, but it's got <clears throat> limitations. Um, you know, your speech has to be um, consistent with Islamic law, um, which can be interpreted by the government to mean whatever they want it to mean. So there is no freedom of speech there. Um, it, it is a it is a fundamentally important right to me, and I think um, <clears throat> I, I worry about it a lot because I see um, a movement currently on both sides of the political spectrum in the West um, to limit it. I think we have forgotten, by we I mean sort of Canadians or Westerners, <clears throat> you know, why we have this protection in the first place. Um, because we have never had to deal with its absence. I think we sometimes forget its value. Um, you know, it's the freedom of speech is is the corrective that you use to um, right whatever wrong is happening in society. You take that right away, and suddenly your ability to fix other social issues goes away as well. And um, right now, you're seeing from the right attacks on free speech, attacks on the media, fake news. You know, you hear it yelled out every day by by the president of the United States. But you have an incredibly dangerous and insidious movement on the left as well, um, where basically any speech that they disagree with, um, they call it racist, um, you know, sexist, homophobic, Islamophobic, whatever. And they try to deplatform people and they try to take away people's livelihoods. Um, and I find that incredibly dangerous. I think we are forgetting the tenets of our sort of liberal democracy and, and why we have this liberal democratic system in the first place. Hey everyone, before we continue, a quick thank you to our exclusive sponsor, LexisNexis Canada. LexisNexis has been essential in developing the podcast with us and bringing you the content you've learned to love. For this episode, be sure to check out the links in our main page where you can visit the latest solo and small firm e-brief brought to you by LexisNexis Canada. This is an invaluable resource for solo and small firms, which includes a solo spotlight interview with lawyers, articles highlighting solo and small firm trends, areas of practice, newsletters, and more. In the latest eBrief, you'll see topics such as how can AI help lawyers, cloud security, and why legal marketing often falls flat. This is an essential resource brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, and we encourage you to visit the link by going to our website, robishowlaw.ca, clicking on this podcast, and you'll be able to click through to all of these links. In addition, you'll find links to practice notes and meeting wills, trusts, and estate litigation and dispute and intellectual property and technology experts. On this page, there's profiles and interviews of some of the top litigators and practitioners in this area. These interviews are fascinating, and I encourage you all to go and read them. And you'll also find a link to the three-part series on wills, trusts, and estates, digital estate myths. So thank you once again to LexisNexis Canada for bringing this wonderful content, and thank you for your ongoing support. And with that, back to our podcast. When you say, you know, obviously there's very big concerns on the right with uh, movements towards what people will describe as white supremacy. Uh, and then on the left, um, you've, you've indicated that there's some challenges there as well relating to um, people <clears throat> putting forward um, positions that people are racist. 
Um, I want to point out one particular tweet um, where you got engaged with a professor from the University of New Brunswick. And essentially what it's centered around is challenging you to have a position um, as um, a person of color, of an Iranian, uh, who uh, challenged him on his, uh, you know, sort of woke version of what freedom of speech and social justice means. Do you see that part of the, the issue? I do. So for your listeners that are not extremely online like you and I are, Sean, um, you know, this this was a professor. I mean, he, he's kind of well-known, I guess, on Twitter um, that takes a lot of these so-called woke positions. And his view was basically people that he deems to have white supremacist views ought to be driven out of town. They ought to be, you know, they ought to lose their jobs. They ought to be hounded in restaurants, I think was his term. And so I came back and I said, look, I, I come from a place where people literally die for the right to speak. And um, I think that's an ignorant thing to say. And <coughs> his response was something like, oh, you know, stop playing this um, ethnic Iran card or some, some, something along those lines. Um, and, and I found that very, very strange because here's a guy who um, spends a lot of time on Twitter posing and posturing about how he cares about what people of color think. Right. And here I am, a person, uh, you know, not Caucasian, um, speaking back to him and, and he's very dismissive of my attitude. And I, I think it speaks to a larger point. I, I worry a lot that this progressive woke social justice movement, um, noble as its, um, intentions are, um, often is quite, uh, patronizing towards, towards people of color. I mean, it, it sees us as people that need constant protection, um, as, people who are so utterly fragile um, and people that have very little agency and that we need um, white people to stand up and protect us. Um, and so long as we're parroting that line back to them, they're perfectly happy with it and they're happy to hold us up as examples of, you know, people of color that support them. But the minute we say, no, 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 actually, you know, we came to this country, for example, because we value free speech. We don't want the government to decide, um, you know, what we can or cannot listen to. Um, that's when they kind of get confused and they, they don't know how to handle us. And, um, and that, that was sort of the, the basis of the exchange that I, that I had with them. But I, I, I want to stress that point that I, I do think the intentions behind the social justice movement are good. But, and, and here is, I think, where I, my background from Iran is helpful. Um, that's unfortunately the case with a lot of, um, theocratic, um, or, um, authoritarian regimes um, where the people that, that run these governments think they're doing good. They think they're, they have virtue on their side and they want to impose virtue on others. And that actually becomes a very, very dangerous thing. And so I, I often say that the social justice movement on the left is, is almost theocratic in outlook. And I, I stand by that because I, I think that's really the, the essence of it. It's just the, this view that they understand what virtue is and they want the rest of society to go along with their conception of virtue. And that's really at odds with liberal democracy, um, which in which, you know, each individual should, should be able to determine for themselves this concept of social good. And uh, I think we're going to have problems on our hands in the, in the coming few years while we work out this issue because I think, you know, the, the, the movements on the fringes of the left and right are, are gaining more and more power and the liberal Democrats in the center are getting squeezed out. 
We even saw this controversy come to fruition in the most recent uh, election that just finished a couple days ago, uh, and it centered all around the statement of principles. Uh, and you know, taking the point you mentioned a little bit further, um, we had people who were pro statement of principles calling out people who were um, against the statement of principles um, to women candidates as being tokens. Yeah. And um, I remember watching a, a very powerful speech um, by one of those candidates. Um, uh, she described her ta- time uh, in Hong Kong where uh, this was something that, like you say, people died to uh, have to actually fight for the right to say things. And that seemed to resonate with a, a lot of the candidates, in fact, not just uh, the women candidates, but a lot of the male candidates that were coming forward described about their uh, heritage. But focusing back on the issue of tokenism, it seems to be aligned in many ways with this dispute that you got into with, with this professor, is that it's either this particular value system or nothing. And just to push out a little bit further to see um, the danger, and I, I, I don't want to project that this is certainly not where Ontario is going, but taken to its logical end, um, you're very critical about um, what's happening in Venezuela right now. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the article you wrote for the uh, McDonald Laurier Institute? Uh, about Venezuela? Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I think, um, you know, Venezuela is another one of those cases where um, the Canadian left, the international left, um, gets it fundamentally wrong. I think what they... <clears throat> what they see is is an anti-imperialist government, um, that of Chavez or Maduro, um, you know, standing up to the big American bullies. Um, but if you actually, you know, follow people on the ground in Venezuela, as I do on on Twitter and, and social media and elsewhere, that's not the experience that they have. I mean, their experience is, a, you know, an undemocratic government that's taken over and it's sitting on, you know, one of the largest oil reserves in the world and has, has driven their country into utter poverty. Um, and I, I see a parallel there, again, just by virtue of being involved so much on Iran issues, I, I see the similar sort of sympathy that a lot of anti-imperialists in the West have with um, uh, with the Iranian government, just by virtue of the fact that it stands up to um, the US and Israel. Um, you know, just because somebody stands up to the US doesn't necessarily make them your ally, it doesn't make them the good guys. Um, there are plenty of bad actors in the world who are also opposed to the US. I don't think we necessarily need to have to get into bed with all of them. Um, but, you know, so, to, to go back to your initial point about the, the statement of principles and all that and the, the tokenism, um, I, I think part of the issue there is that, um, the, the people that are, that are pushing these social justice positions often don't recognize that even within the communities that they're trying to protect, um, there are real disputes and, um, you know, there, there are, there are different positions on these issues. So I'll give you an example. I mean, I think, um, the, the, the hijab example comes to mind, right? I think it's pretty universal that the, the social justice left in Canada or the U.S., um, consistently holds up the hijab as a symbol of, I, I think we had a, we had a U.S. Um, House representative actually put out a tweet saying, you know, for me, it represents um, freedom and it represents um, fighting against oppression and so on. And a lot of Western leftists tend to parrot this line. What they don't recognize is that, you know, in the Western, in the, excuse me, in the Muslim world, there are a lot of people who are actually struggling 
um, against the very this very symbol, right? There are a lot of women in Iran and Saudi Arabia elsewhere who want the same freedoms that, that women in the West have. And yet when they turn around and they look at their Western feminist friends or their Western leftist friends who should be on their side, um, those Westerners are actually talking about the hijab as a, as a sign of anti-oppression. And I think what the, what the Western leftists miss is that, look, there are actually people within those communities that are fighting very hard for the same things that they have here in the West. They're fighting for um, liberal democracy. And that the people that they should be championing um, are not kind of the most oppressive, backwards, conservative members of, you know, the Islamic community or what, what have you, but actually people that are, that are fighting for, for liberal de- democratic values. And I think if we, if we get that right, a lot more will fall into place. Unfortunately, I, I don't think the Western left is there yet. You describe um, what seems to be a, an irony of sorts that, you know, the push towards diversity only recognizes a certain category of what those diverse groups should stand for. And, uh, did you see a lot of this on, on Twitter unfold, um, during the venture election? And did, did you have any thoughts of what was happening? Because it became quite incendiary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, what I did see was, uh, people using the term racist a lot, um, to refer to anyone that spoke up against the statement of principles. And I found that to be disheartening. Um, I think there are perfectly good non-racist reasons why somebody would take that position. I'm somebody that, that thought the statement of pr- principles was not very good policy. Um, certainly it would benefit me in some ways, right? Uh, but I, I, I still think the compelled speech element of it is very, very problematic. And part of the problem, I think, with these debates is that both sides um, really often assume bad faith on the, on the part of the other. So, you know, when somebody takes a position of being anti- statement of principles, there could be a whole host of reasons. Um, I don't know why we necessarily have to kind of assume the very worst about them and, and think that their real motivation is because they don't want diversity, they don't want inclusion. Um, I think the statement of principles is a perfect example of kind of what I was talking about, where people have perfectly good, noble um, objectives, but as they say, you know, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Um, demanding that people... Um, say things that you deem to be virtuous, I think is a very, very dangerous precedent. And um, I'm glad that the results, I mean, I'm, I'm not glad that you didn't win, Sean. I, I really <laughs> would have wanted you to win, but uh, I, I'm glad that hopefully we're going to get some some rolling back of, of this overreach. So speaking of politics, yeah. you um, did run as a candidate uh, a while back for the Liberal Party. Um, why did you do that? Do you think you'd ever get back into politics someday? Yeah, so earlier I was mentioning that when I was a public servant, I began to realize that a lot of decisions um, are made on th- at the elected level. You know, as, as a public servant, ultimately what you do is you present options uh, to the elected officials from which they pick. And so I wanted to be on the side that actually decided kind of the direction we wanted to go in. Um, <coughs> I ran a nomination. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't successful. Um, and I don't know if I would do it again. And I think it's because that nomination process was so, um, it was so nasty. Um, and what it did was it, it gave me certain insights about the ways in which our, our system needs to be fixed. I don't know if I have any solutions, but I, I think I have a better sense of the problem. The problem is the, the way candidates are chosen um, oftentimes turns on a handful of votes, like a couple hundred votes um, going one way or another. 
And that gives people every incentive to try to mobilize some ethnic community or some religious community to get them to come out and vote. And I, I you know, I'm not innocent of that. I, I, I ran in a riding where there were a lot of people of, of my own ethnic community because I wanted to mobilize them. But I think that's, that's a real problem. I, I think, um, it doesn't always give us the best candidates and it doesn't give us candidates who think about, um, issues that affect all Canadians. It, it, it selects for people that might have a particular constituency in a particular riding. Um, and it leads to just nasty, um, conflicts within, within ridings between often ethnic, ethnic communities or religious communities. And I, I think that's a very bad way of selecting, uh, selecting candidates. So to answer your question, I, I, I don't necessarily see politics in my future, but we'll see. I mean, yeah, who knows what tomorrow brings. So notwithstanding your activity within human rights and you, you know, you're, you're with the, uh, I think a senior fellow now with the McDonald Laurier Institute. Um, so clearly you're still very engaged in this, but you are working in-house counsel right now. You worked as in-house counsel for uh, Barrett Gold and now you're working with Magna. Uh, we've actually never had an in-house counsel on the program. So this is kind of uh, a nice way to get that aspect and that perspective as well. Um, can you tell us what, does a, an in-house counsel do for those people who are, yeah. you know, law students who are thinking maybe sure. I want to do that one day? It's it's hard to answer that question because there's not really one specific thing that an in-house lawyer does. An in-house lawyer shows up every day, um, and tries to put out whatever fire um, has been lit the night before. Um, you know, you you work with your business team to help them achieve their objectives, whatever they may be. So you know, in the places that I've worked. Um, you know, there are specialized lawyers. For example, at Magna, we have specialized lawyers that, that work on, um, labor and employment issues. But most of the in-house counsel don't have specialized roles. They're just generalists. So if, um, you know, you want to enter into, uh, some agreement with some vendor, like that, that commercial agreement comes to me. If you're selling securities, if you're doing annual disclosures, if you're, um, <clears throat> doing any number of things that a, that a company does, um, you try to work with your business team to achieve that. I find that actually quite interesting and in a lot of ways, um, uh, more engaging than what you do at a law firm. You know, when I was back at Cleary in New York, um, I worked on private equity deals and private equity funds that were being formed. And so we had a general partnership agreement that, you know, we represented general partners in these private equity, uh, funds. And it was really essentially my role was to draft as one document over and over and over again um, for different private equity funds. So I knew this one contract thoroughly, but I knew nothing else. When you're in-house, you're dealing with issues coming at you left, right, and center. Um, depending on how big your um, in-house legal department is, um, you know, you, you could be dealing with, you know, employment issues one day, you know, a commercial agreement tomorrow, data privacy the next day, like whatever it is, it comes across your desk. And it's super interesting. Um, one of the things that I've noticed actually being in-house is I, I, I think we, we might have it backwards, right? So I think typically the way it works is somebody goes to law school, then they go work for a law firm. And then if they kind of want the off-ramp, they go and work in-house for a company. I think that actually has it backwards. I think it would benefit um, everybody if people went and worked in-house after law school and they kind of got to see what it is that companies need from their lawyers and what the legal needs, I mean, I'm talking about people that, that want to do work in the, in the corporate world. Um, and, you know, what types of legal advice would be useful for, um, for companies? And then from there, if you went to 
um, a law firm, I think you could probably offer much more valuable service to your clients if you actually know what their needs are. Um, so sometimes, you know, we use outside counsel and, and we ask for advice and we get memos that are very lengthy and they're, you know, about the history of some statute or whatever. And like, that's interesting from a legal perspective, but that's not interesting or useful um, when you're trying to advise your internal clients on whether you should choose option A or B. And once you're in-house, you begin to realize that your business team doesn't want a treatise on something. They want actual practical advice. Um, so I think had you, if, if, a, if a law student spends some time in-house and then goes to a law firm, they can probably be a much better lawyer and much more valuable to their clients. That's a very interesting perspective because we're often hearing about this disconnect between the business world and law. You know, we're trained as lawyers to act very conservatively, give advice of, you know, 10 different options, none of which are uh, acceptable. <laughs> but really, it seems like what you're describing is businesses need answers. And, you know, yes, there's always going to be risk, but we need to know what's the most tolerable in relation to profits, etc. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, when you're in-house, you're often giving um, advice about various imperfect options and you're laying out the risk and, and letting people make decisions based on understanding of the risk. You're never going to arrive at a perfect answer. And sometimes what I see, I mean, the more sophisticated firms are, I think, better at this, but some of the younger lawyers um, will often look for an answer that has zero risk and they don't find it. Um, but that's, that's really not what they should be looking for. And that's not what the business world is looking for. What is, um, a quality in a person, a character trait that would be valuable to have as an in-house counsel? Um, I think being very organized, frankly, because, you know, at any given moment, you probably have 10 different files on the go at various stages. Um, and I think just being personable and curious about the business world, um, whatever business your company is in, I think you want to understand what that business is and you want to be able to figure out kind of what your business team is trying to achieve. Um, you can't think of the legal department in-house as being something separate from the rest of the business. Like it has to be integrated into the business and you have to understand what the business objectives are. So I, by that, I don't mean necessarily that you need to have a business background, but you need to just be curious about what your team is doing and how you can help them. Kava, what's the difference between, you know, when you look at your friends who are probably on Wall Street and what your day-to-day -day is like, how does it compare? I mean, I'm sure they own, each have their own respective stresses yeah. and issues, but uh, what does your day-to-day -day look like? Yeah, my day-to-day -day tends to be a little bit easier than theirs, than the ones that have stayed behind on Wall Street or, or wherever. Um, I think I just, I deal with a wider range of things as an in-house lawyer. Um, the friends that have stayed behind at law firms have, as I was saying, they've become great at, you know, that one contract that they deal with. Um, they also, um, the ones that are at law firms, obviously spend a lot more time trying to drum up business and, and doing business development and that kind of work. And I've never really loved that, so... Um, <laughs> is there a way, you know, coming from New York, did you learn any um, techniques that help you manage stress or was it just all the work your work was the management? I, I don't know if I've ever figured out a way of managing <laughs> stress. Yeah. And on top of everything else, I've got little kids that add to my stress. So yeah. right. never, never mastered it. So wrapping up then, um, I'll ask you a question. I ask everyone. And that is, um, if you could reverse one Supreme Court of Canada case or have the power of AG and make some major tweak to the law in Canada or in the province, what do you think it might be? Yeah, uh, it's, it's funny. I mean, I, I went to law school in the U.S., so I'm, I'm a little bit more familiar, frankly, with, with the U.S. constitutional tradition than the Canadian one. But I think in Canada, um, I think probably like Keekstra and that those lines of cases having to do with hate speech. Um, I am, when it comes to free speech, I'm much more... 
um, in favor of the American approach to it, which is pretty much anything goes short of incitement to violence. Um, I've never really quite understood the argument for hate speech laws. Um, I don't think they work. I don't think they actually decrease the amount of hate in people's hearts. Um, I think all they do is they um, make martyrs out of racists and hateful people. And what they do is they, they kind of give these bad ideas an allure because they're, they're banned. And um, yeah, so if I could, if I had a magic wand and I could change something, I think it would be um, those laws having to do with hate speech. Follow-up question to that then. Um, from what you've seen, particularly over the past few months with a lot of the division that's happened with the statement of principles, um, what do you think a bridge might look like between those two? I mean, what I would want to see from the benchers that have been elected um, that um, are against the statement of principles, I think they ought to move quickly um, to indicate that they're actually serious about increasing diversity and, and inclusion and equality. Um, and I think that would go a long way in um, addressing people's fears that maybe, you know, these guys aren't in it because they, they don't like these concepts. They just want to make sure that it's done in a, in a proper um you know, a proper liberal democratic way. Um, and I think, I'm not really sure what the answer is. I mean, I think there's a need for more mentorship. There's a need for more um, education. I think the clients need to be educated um, because oftentimes, you know, the, the employment decisions and partnership decisions at law firms tend to be made based on kind of what the clients want. So I think there ought to be some public education of that nature as well. All right. Well, thank you very much, everyone. That's uh, Kaveh Sharus. Uh, My pleasure. It was I really a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Appreciate being part of uh, the podcast. 